Good morning, New Life. You guys can grab a seat. Hope you all had an awesome uh, 4th of July weekend. For those of you who are driving back from uh, mom and dads and grandmas and grandpas who are joining us uh, via our live feed, uh, welcome to you as well. Of course, those of us who really love Jesus are here, but um, I'm just kidding. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here. A uh, quick, quick reminder, uh, two weekends from now, actually 13 days from today, we're having our big summer event called Intentional. It's a family discipleship conference. Now, you guys have probably heard the statistics. We've talked about them uh, from the stage here quite a bit in the past. Um, but the, the numbers are alarming, right? Depending on who you read and what statistic you look at, we uh, are losing between 60 and 80% of our kids that, that grow up in the American church typically will leave the church or leave their faith by the end of their freshman year in college. And we just think that's not acceptable. Like that's not good enough for us. And so for our leadership, it's really important that we dive into that issue and we correct it the best we can. Uh, I'm convinced that one of the primary reasons uh, our attrition rate is so just shameful is because we're, we're just not doing a good enough job at home. The reality is, uh, you know, we get your kids like an hour, you know, a week if we're lucky. And uh, if we're counting on that being the linchpin that drives them to Jesus, man, we are fighting a losing battle um, almost every single time. Uh, the reality is God has given the role of primary disciple maker to parents, to moms and dads. And it's not our job as the church to disciple and evangelize your kids. That's your job. And so we want to, as your faith family, come alongside of you and partner with you to help disciple your kids. And so that's one reason why we're having this event. One of our big dreams, one of our five-year goals is to equip at least 100 families in how to disciple their kids at home. And so if you're here as a, as a team member, a church member here at New Life, or you're here just as a first-time guest, if you've got kids, if you've got grandkids, let me encourage you, register for this event, July 20th. So two weekends, we're gonna spend the morning together right here at New Life. We're gonna equip you guys, uh, hopefully get you guys some tools where you can be confident in discipling your little ones at home, your teens at home. Um, we're gonna have lunch for you. And uh, we'll have childcare, not just childcare, we're actually gonna have like bouncy houses and really cool uh, fun stuff for your kids. So we'll be in here kind of learning together and have some breakout sessions and our kids are gonna have a blast um, while we're learning how to disciple them at home. So please, uh, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, register for that event. You can do that on your New Life app right now. Just whip it out and do it right now. Uh, or you can do a, go to our website, you can go to our next steps tables as you exit in our lobby as well. All right, we've been in the book of Philippians for uh, three weeks now, and uh, this morning we are finally going to get out of chapter uh, one, God willing, and um, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, for whatever reason, Philippians is a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a very eclectic, kind of multicultural melting pot of a city called Philippi that frankly was very, very similar uh, to our own city right here in Asheville. Now, I think that Philippi, the church in Philippi, was the Apostle Paul's favorite church. Like, out of all the churches he planted, man, he really loved the brothers and sisters in the church in Philippi. He writes them with a, just kind of like this tone of affection that you can't find anywhere else in any of his writings. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Make a beeline for Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 27 today. And then we're going to get all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Now, in this portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Paul is going to tell us that there are certain um, qualities or there are certain like distinctives that should be 
marks in our lives. Like if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, there should be things, some things that should be marks or, or like elements that are present in your life. And the Apostle Paul is going to compel us to live a life, and he's, this is his terminology, worthy of the gospel. So he's going to say, believers, live a life worthy of the gospel. Now here's the danger with passages like this one. We can hear the Apostle Paul say something like that, like you're, you guys need to live lives worthy of the gospel. And we can hear that and we can begin to think, well, that means that we ought to somehow earn our salvation. Like we ought to earn it somehow. Or like we, we have to repay God for the grace that he has shown us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's not the deal at all. Paul's simply saying, hey, you should live this way, Christian, because of who you already are in Jesus. This is, like, this is not an attempt for you to earn God's favor or to earn the love of Christ. Like, there's no way for you to actually earn your way to God. Like, like Jesus already did all of that for you. And so our life now as believers, this should be like an overflow of the gospel that's already in our hearts. Is, is that clear? Like I, I'd never want you guys to leave here saying, well, Pastor Chris said that we've got to somehow work harder or like be more religious and do more things to earn our way to God. That, that's not the message at all. So just wanna clear that up um, on the front end. So what does this gospel-worthy life look like? Paul's gonna lay it out for us. He's gonna give us three primary marks of the gospel-worthy life. So let's go, let's dig in. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says this. Only let your manner of life, and here comes the phrase, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's talking to believers here. Christians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, if, uh, if you're new to church, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you've just been out for a while, you may be wondering what this word is that we use a lot here at New Life, this word gospel. And so when we use phrases like this, like gospel-worthy life, you might be thinking like, what, what does that mean? Well, here's, here's the short of it, right? The gospel is, this is a short definition, but I think it's a, a powerful one. The gospel is Jesus in our place. That's the gospel, Jesus in our place. So on, on that cross, Jesus took all of our junk. He took all of our sin. He took all of our shame. He took the darkest actions of our life, the darkest thoughts of our life. He takes all of that on himself for us, and in exchange on the cross, we get his righteousness. We call that the great exchange. And anyone who believes in him and trusts in him will get abundant life now and in eternity. That's the gospel. And so what that means practically for me, what it means practically for you, if you're here and you are in Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, that means that on that final day, when I stand before God the Father, he is going to see Jesus and not all my junk. Jesus in my place. Now that's really good news, isn't it? So Paul says, believer, you have been made worthy of a story that you are unworthy of. And so live a life that makes Jesus look really big and really beautiful. 
As one uh, commentary writer, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, put it, and I love this. He said, privilege implies responsibility. Privilege implies responsibility. I can remember as a kid, especially as I got into my teen years, and I got my driver's license in a car, and I had a little more of freedom. Anytime I'd get ready to go out with my friends or, or go out on a weekend trip or something like that, my parents would always remind me, Chris, remember who you are. You not only represent yourself, you represent our family. You're, you're a Dylan. In other words, Chris, you have, you have certain privileges as part of this family. Like all that we have is yours. Our house, our food, the fun vacations that we, all, all of that is yours. But those privileges come with a certain responsibility to live your life in a certain way. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is punching at here. Christian, you have the privileges of being a son or a daughter of the king of this universe. Enjoy those privileges. Bask in those privileges, but don't forget that your life should reflect who you are and whose you are. So what are those marks of the gospel-worthy life? Number one, the first mark is supernatural unity. Now look back at verse 27. Paul says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul will later expand on this in chapter two. We'll get that, to that in a minute, but this is what he says in chapter two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In John 17, just a few chapters later, Jesus is praying. It's incredible the scene of Jesus praying for his disciples before his crucifixion. I just wanna read this prayer from Christ. Now, this will be on the screens for you. John 17, this is the prayer of Jesus for his disciples. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. So not only the disciples that are there, not just for the 12. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess what? That's us. Jesus is praying for us in John 17. It just blow, blows my mind. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now listen to this. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus takes it a step further than the apostle Paul. He goes, your unity with each other, believer, authenticates me and my message. The world will know that I am who I say I am because my disciples love one another. And they are unified in this kind of supernatural way. Now, remember the unlikely beginning of the Philippian church, right? The launch, if you were here a couple weeks ago, the launch team of this church consisted of a wealthy Asian businesswoman named Lydia, a slave girl who Paul cast a demon out of, and a pagan soldier and his family. People who would never be unified, people that had nothing in common except for their love for Jesus, and they became a spiritual family together. Now, do you think that that was a powerful picture in the first century? Absolutely, this was, this was, this was radical. 
and it's, and it's powerful today. The world cannot explain unity among people who would normally be divided along racial lines, along socioeconomic lines, along political lines. Jesus goes, yeah, that's how they'll know. That's how they'll know. That, that's gonna be the proof that I am who I say I am, that they are unified in me. Now, you guys know, at least I hope that you know that I, I love new life. Like, I, I love this church. And um, I've been blessed over the course of my life to be a, a part of, of many, many churches all over the world. My parents uh, were missionaries and church planters. My father was a pastor after that. And um, I've been a missionary and a, and a pastor for like 13 years now. I'm getting old. Uh, so I've been doing this a while. And I've been in a lot of different churches in a lot of different contexts. And I'm just telling you, like, I love new life. Like, I'm not supposed to have favorites as a pastor, but you guys are my favorite. Don't tell anybody. You guys are my favorite. And I love that we have people here from so many different backgrounds, multiple ethnicities and nations, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, we have college, he, college kids here who are, are, are just dirt poor, broke as a joke. And then we got uh, a lot of professionals here who have been very uh, successful. God has blessed you in, in many different ways. Uh, we have people here from vastly different spiritual backgrounds, and we are united together as one family under the banner of Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's beautiful because our diversity tells the world that there is something worth unifying over, and that something is, is Jesus. And my prayer, even in the next months and the years to come, would be that we would become more and more diverse even. Like, God, bring us more black brothers and sisters. God, bring, bring us more Latino brothers and sisters. Bring us more Asian brothers and sisters. Bring us the wealthy professionals. Bring us the broke college students. Bring us the prostitute. Bring us the drug addict. Bring them here and let's become a family in Jesus and show the world how big and beautiful Jesus really is. Like unity, unity is so key, guys. It is a mark of the gospel-worthy life. And so before I go any further, let me, let me just ask you, Christian, are there any brothers and sisters in Christ that you are not in unity with right now is there a brother is there a sister is there a grudge is there a root of bitterness in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ and if there is let me just encourage you before the sun sets on today make it right go to them call them Email them, text them, get on an airplane and fly to them if you must. But listen, our unity is far too important to neglect or just like shelf in our lives. Like if you believe Paul, if you believe Jesus, this is a defining mark of someone who really knows and loves Jesus. And I, I get that this is, this is really hard. I'm even, I'm even gonna say that unity is probably the most neglected thing in the American church today. Because we live in such a me, me, me culture, a me first culture, and Paul, and Paul is looking into that and he's saying, no Christian, I, I love you, but it's really not about you. It's not about you, it's about Jesus and his kingdom.
And Paul is going to show us what it looks like to live in unity in a minute, but before we get there, he gives us the second mark of a gospel-worthy life. The first one, remember back, is supernatural unity. Now, he's going to give us number two. Look at verse 28. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul goes, be frightened of nothing, believer. Now remember, first century Christians would have been marginalized. They would have been persecuted. They oftentimes would have been beaten for their faith. Sometimes they would have been imprisoned or even killed. Their opponents were many. The odds were stacked against them. And Paul says, in the middle of all that, he says, be fearless, believer. Be fearless, because your fearlessness is a sign of your salvation and also of their coming destruction apart from Jesus. And then Paul really begins to blow people's minds in verse 29. He says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but get this, but also suffer for his sake. So Paul's like, be fearless because it has been granted to you. This is the idea of a gift. Paul is saying, believer, it has been gifted to you, not just to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. And in the middle of that, I want you to be fearless. Now, you've heard the phrase a lot in our culture, uh, the struggle is real, right? There are all kinds of like memes on social media and stuff like that. The struggle is real. Everybody says that about everything now. The struggle is real. And I think Paul would say to us, yes, the struggle is real, but the struggle is also a gift because Jesus is a treasure worth suffering for, worth struggling through. I have a friend who was a, a missionary in Afghanistan for uh, many, many years. In fact, he was the only American that stayed uh, post 9-11 when the bomb started to drop in Afghanistan. He was over there for many years. He's written some books and got a lot of cool stories of things that God did over there. But he got married uh, with another, to, another, uh, to a woman over there who was also a missionary. They have uh, several kids now, little kids now. They now live in the States, but he travels back to Afghanistan a couple times a year. He's got a ministry over there. And I think the world would look at my friend and say, man, you, you are a fool. You're a fool. You have everything to lose. You have a beautiful young wife. You have four healthy, beautiful children. And you're going to one of the most dangerous places in the world with the gospel. Like, you are a fool. And my friend would say, man, I, I've already got the thing that matters most, and that's Jesus. And you guys need to know, as a church, we're, we're going to be going to some places, as a church family, starting soon, that may be scary to some of you. And we're going to ask you to go anyway. And God is going to ask you to go anyway. Now, more, more on that soon in the coming weeks and months ahead, but know this, that for the Christian, suffering is not a deterrent because Jesus is worth it. And that's the second mark of a gospel-worthy life. Number two, we are to be, as believers, fearless even in our suffering. Now, you may never be imprisoned for your faith. You may never be assassinated for your faith in Jesus. Maybe you will, but probably not because we live in the United States. But that is a reality for many, for millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But I promise you, if you live for Jesus, if you live an authentic life for Christ, there will be opposition. There will be spiritual opposition that we face. Some of you may lose a job someday because you're unwilling to do some unethical things because you follow Jesus. 
Many of us have, many of us will lose friends because of our faith. Some will be rejected by their own family because of Jesus. Some of you have told me your stories of being rejected by your families because of your faith in Christ. Just last week, I was having lunch with uh, one of you guys, one of the, one of the leaders here at, at New Life, and telling me about uh, one of their kids who's at a, uh, a public uh, university who had to leave their job because of harassment from their supervisors because of their faith in Jesus. We will suffer if we actually live for Jesus. That is a certainty. And Paul says, embrace it fearlessly, believer, because it's proof of your salvation. And it's convicting to your opponents because they cannot explain your joy or your fearlessness in the face of suffering. So number one, Paul says, be unified. Supernatural unity should mark our lives. Number two, he says, be fearless. Even in suffering, be fearless, and the world will stand in awe. Paul continues this argument right into chapter two, beginning in verse one, he says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and this is Paul's way of kind of like asking rhetorical questions, right? He's saying, because there is so much encouragement in Christ, because there is so much comfort from the love of Christ. Verse two, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Paul, again, is pointing us back to unity. Are you starting to get the impression that this is important? Like whenever we see the biblical writers repeat themes in the same passage, this is their way of bolding, of highlighting, of putting exclamation points by these sentences. They're shouting to us, listen up, pay attention. This is really, really important. Supernatural unity is a sign to the world that we belong to Jesus, that he is who he actually claims to be, the Messiah, the Savior. And now Paul will show us how to be unified by giving us a couple of unity killers. Let's pick that up in verse three. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, what's, what's going on here in the Philippian church? I'd say, apparently, uh, they, they weren't getting along perfectly. Now, that's, that's not hard to imagine. As you think back to the beginning of the church in Philippi, you can imagine it beginning to grow and expand. Remember back, Lydia, one of the founders of the church, is a wealthy a businesswoman, not hard to imagine. Maybe there was an element of pride there. Maybe she was a bit of a control freak. You know, after all, she was given more money than everybody else. Perhaps the, uh, the young slave girl, years have passed now. She's probably a young woman. Maybe at this point, she's, uh, she's married. Maybe she has a couple of kids. You think maybe she had some trust issues that she was working through? Probably so. You would too if you were in her shoes. Nobody could blame her for that. What about the uh, ex-military guy, the uh, Philippian jailer and his family? Think maybe he was rough around the edges a little bit? You think maybe he had to work through some anger issues? I'm guessing this guy probably could be a little abrasive at times. No, this is just speculation on my part, but it's, it's easy for us to see how little fractures of division could begin to claw their way into this incredible 
and remarkably healthy church in Philippi. And you have to remember, we're talking about the Philippian church here, right? This is like the most healthy church that we find in the New Testament. We're not talking about like the Corinthian church where we got like dudes sleeping with their stepmoms and stuff like that. This is, this is a healthy church in Philippi. And yet even healthy churches can get messy. Do you want to know why even healthy churches can get messy? Because you're messy. And because I'm messy. And we all come from different places in life and we carry different wounds with us. And we carry our own sets of baggage with us and you start to live life with people and stuff happens. Toes get stepped on, feelings get hurt. Some bratty little kid says something mean to your kid in kids' church and you get mad about it. I love, I love new people to, to new life. So if you're new here, I love you. I really, I really do. And I love them because oftentimes they'll come up to you after a service or they'll send me a really sweet email and they'll say, say things like, man, we've, I've never been in a church like New Life. It's like the most perfect church, the most flawless church I've ever been a part of. Like, this, this is incredible. This is awesome. And I just smile because I want to say, yes, this is an awesome church, but just wait. <laughs> just wait. Somebody is going to tick you off. Somebody eventually is going to hurt your feelings. Heck, it might be me, right? But guess what? You're eventually probably going to tick me off. You're going to hurt my feelings. And it is not a matter of if there will be conflict. It's a matter of how we handle the conflict when it arrives. Will we handle it like the world, like everybody else, or will we handle it like Jesus? With love and unity and long-suffering and forgiveness, have you ever wondered why every little southern town you drive through has like a first Baptist church and then two blocks later there's a second Baptist church and there's a first Methodist church and a second Methodist church and a first Presbyterian church and a second Presbyterian church? That's because like somewhere back in like 1972, some people wanted red carpet and some people wanted blue carpet. And the blue carpet people got ticked off because they went with red and so they went three blocks down and built second Baptist church. This is dumb stuff, man shameful stuff. Our unity tells the world that what we believe is legit. And so if you have unforgiveness in your heart, if you have the root of bitterness in your heart towards any brother or any sister, any disunity, make that right, believer. For the sake of Jesus, kill that junk in your heart. I believe that is our enemy's number one tactic to derail the kingdom advancement of Jesus. It's disunity in the church. Because he knows that when all of us from like all of our different walks of life and all of our different personalities and cultures and backgrounds, he knows that when all of us are unified, that makes the gospel of Jesus look really big and really beautiful to the world around us. And Paul is going, brothers, like, sisters, I love you, but be careful. Be careful. This is, this is so important. That word that Paul uses in the original language for selfish ambition, it actually carries the meaning of rivalry or jealousy. And so if you're a competitive person by nature, like I am, you, man, you have to really watch out for this. Be honest. Have, have, you, ever, have you ever been bummed out when something good happened to someone that you felt like was less deserving than you? Right, like, why did he get that promotion? 
I'm way smarter than him. Like, I work way harder than him. Why did she get that good looking boyfriend? Like I'm way prettier than her. Or how, how about this one? I love God more than them. How come they get the big house and the nice car and the exotic vacations? I know I read my Bible way more than that loser. Why is he getting all that stuff? Or how about this one? Have you ever like secretly cheered in your heart? Like we'd never say it out loud. We're way too pious for that. But have you ever secretly like cheered in your heart when something bad happens to someone that you don't particularly like? Like they lose a job or that good looking boyfriend finally dumps them. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. But on the inside, you're going, yes. About time something bad happened to you, punk. Right? Selfish ambition. This is, a, this is a unity killer. And listen to me. I want you to understand, th- this is sin. This is an assault on the gospel of Jesus. Paul says, watch out. Watch out for se- selfish ambition, number one. But also he says, watch out for conceit. And this word conceit is the idea of self-glory. It's this idea that you want to matter. It's this idea that you want people to recognize you. This is, at its core, raw Pride. And I promise you, no matter who you are, you have the seed of this sin in your heart this morning, and I'll prove it to you. What's the first thing that you look at when someone shows you a picture that you're in? What do you look for? Number one, be honest. Don't lie to me. What's the first thing you look at? Don't lie. You look at yourself, don't you? You look at you. It could be like the worst picture ever of everybody else in the picture, but if you look good, you're like, dang, that is a good picture. Like, who's the photographer? Are they professionals? That's, like, that's why she, she, our oldest, Haley, is old enough now where she can take pictures of Cheryl and I, like before we go out for a date or whatever. And um, inevitably, we have to take the picture like 13 times, right? Because she gets one that she really likes, or she loves the way she looks, and my eyes are closed. She's like, no, nah, I like that one. I'm like, babe, my, my eyes literally, like you can't, even, you can't even see my eyes. She's like, yeah, but look at my hair. You know, it's, a, it's beautiful, you know? She's out of the country, don't tell her I said that. Or we get one where I think like, man, I look, I look awesome there. And she's like rubbing her nose or, or something like that. And I'm like, yep, that's the one. That's the one that's going on Facebook. And you do the same exact thing, so don't be judging me. I feel your glares. Paul says, believer, watch out. Watch out, this is, this is cancer in your heart. This is cancer in the church, family. Kill conceit. Kill self-glory. Kill pride before it kills you and it hurts those that you love the most. And we laugh about some of these things and it is kind of funny in a weird way, but listen, this is toxic. This is toxic in relationships. It is toxic in a church family. And so how do we do this, Paul? This seems really, really hard to me. It seems almost impossible because don't our hearts naturally drift towards wanting to be important? Don't our hearts naturally drift towards wanting others to recognize us and honor us? Don't we naturally want to compete? Don't we naturally want to win? And in verse three, Paul's gonna give us the key to killing the seed of this spiritual cancer in our hearts. Go back to verse three, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul goes, Christian, humble yourself. 
Humble yourself. Learn to care for other people. Learn to celebrate them. Learn to walk with them through their pain and their joy. Make your life about loving God and loving others. That is the best antidote to the disease of pride and selfish ambition. And that is the third mark of a gospel-worthy life. Christian, be marked by radical selflessness. C.S. Lewis said it best, and I quote C.S. Lewis far too often, but I like him, so get over it. This is what he says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. In other words, this isn't becoming a person who has no self-value. Paul is not saying that Christians should become passive doormats. It's just understanding that your value comes from Christ. And because of that, we can love others. We can focus our time, energy, and resources outside of ourselves because it's not about us, Christian. It's about Jesus and his kingdom. And Paul knew if he could just get these believers' eyes off of themselves and locked in on Jesus, he knew that unity would follow. But unity requires humility. And when we are unified and when we are humble, we can do anything together as a faith family. Do you see how these three marks of a gospel-worthy life are all kind of interconnected? Like, you, you can't have one without the other. And just a side note here, but this is, this is no small side note. The gospel-worthy life happens in community. Far too often as American Christians, we like to read scripture as if it was written to us individually. By and large, you need to understand, these, these letters are written to churches. They are written to groups of people doing life together. You cannot, listen, you cannot practice unity if you are not in community. You cannot suffer well for Jesus if you don't have a tribe of people around you praying for you, loving you, encouraging you. You cannot live out humility, counting others more significant than yourself if you don't know anybody. If you don't have anybody in your life allowing them to get to know you. Now understand this, what we, what we do you know, on Sunday mornings, like what we're doing right now, this, this is important. We are commanded to gather as believers corporately. We are commanded to sing. We are commanded to worship. We are commanded to practice generosity together for the sake of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to gather to baptize and celebrate Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper, all of those things. But we cannot live the Christian life well in rows. That happens in smaller circles. So if you need a smaller circle, I mean, I'm glad that you're here on a Sunday morning, but if you need a smaller circle where you can actually flesh out unity and humility and suffering together with other believers, let us know. Fill that out on your Connect card. Contact Pastor Jonathan. He oversees all of that. But understand this. None of what we're talking about this morning is possible as a Lone Ranger Christian. This whole thing is a team sport. Now, you may not want it to be, but that doesn't change the fact that it is. It just is. So the only question that really remains is simply this. How, how do I live this life? This seems to me almost impossible. How do we live this life? And here's the short answer. You can't. You can't on your own. I promise you, if you walk out of here and you try to willpower your way to live in a gospel-worthy life, walking humbly, being unified, 
being fearless even in suffering. You, you try to do that in your own strength. You will last maybe a day. If you're really disciplined, you might get a week out of it, but you will eventually fail. You are not disciplined enough to do this on your own. But there is a way. There is a way to live this life, and Paul gives us the key to unlocking this revolutionary life, starting in verse five. Listen to what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed or given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul goes, Jesus is the key to this life. If Jesus, being God, humbled himself to the point of a brutal Bloody death on a cross, being stripped naked, humiliated, mocked, beaten beyond recognition. For you, Christian, you can humble yourself and live in unity with one another and even suffer well together because you know the one who has conquered suffering and death. And so Paul would say, stop the competition Cut out the self-glory. Stop comparing yourself to one another. Look to Jesus who humbled himself to a degree that all of us will never understand. And it's as you get to know him and as you walk with him that he will begin to transform your heart from a divided heart to a unified heart. He will take you from being a fear-filled person to being a fearless person. He will take you from being a self-focused person to being an others-focused person. And listen, you can't do that. You can't do that in yourself, but Jesus can. He can, and he will if you'll walk with him. So here's, here's kind of the big idea as we begin to, to dock the ship this morning. Here's the big idea. Jesus is the key that unlocks this gospel-worthy life. If you want to live a revolutionary life, if you want to live a countercultural life in the middle of a shallow, self-centered world, go all in with Jesus. Listen, aren't you, aren't you tired of the hollowness of a self-focused life? Man, I know I am. It is a weak Lame, empty life. I've had enough of that. See, I, I, I know myself. I know me. I know I'm not worthy of giving my life away to, but Jesus is. His mission is. So I would say, friend, follow Jesus. Walk with him. Join him in his mission. Seek unity. Live humbly. Live fearless lives. You'll begin to set the world around you ablaze as you point people to the light of Jesus. I love this quote by John Wesley, who was an 18th century English pastor 
one of the leaders along with uh, Whitfield of the, the great revival that spread from England to America. Let, listen to this quote. Wesley said, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. Wesley was saying, Christian, douse yourself with passion for Jesus. Let your life burn with this gospel-focused, gospel-saturated, gospel-worthy life. And people will be drawn to the source of the flame within you. They'll be drawn to Jesus within you. As we close this morning, let me invite you just to bow your heads with me for a minute as the, the band comes. You know, we, we all burn with passion for something, don't we? We're all living at the end of the day for something. So as we close this morning, let me just ask you, what is that one thing for you? What are you most passionate about? What drives you when you wake up in the morning? What are you thinking about when you go to bed at night? What is that one thing for you? And I'm just telling you this morning, like if that one thing is not Jesus, this revolutionary, like gospel-worthy life that Paul is talking about, this abundant life, which is what Jesus called it, it's not going to happen for you. If Jesus isn't that one thing that you're centering your life around, it's not gonna happen for you, it never will. And your life will be just like everybody else's life out there, boring, self-focused, all about you, no real impact, no true adventure, no greater cause to live for beyond yourself. Jesus is the only one who can give you this life, friend. He's the only one. Let's pray. Father, Father, there, there is none like you. As we sing here, God, you, you have no rival. You truly have no equal. There, there is no God like our God. Father, thank you for humbling yourself. Thank you for sending Jesus to, to enter our mess, to redeem us, to make us your sons and daughters. God, we could never repay you for that. There's no way we could ever earn our way to you, but Jesus has already done that for us, God. And so give us freedom from performance, God. Allow us to live this gospel-worthy life in full freedom. God, teach us to love each other well. Teach us to forgive one another well. Teach us to walk humbly, to stand unified, even in suffering, God. I hope our lives make Jesus look really big and really beautiful to the world around us. And God, we know, we confess that the only way we can live this life is by walking with you. It's by walking with Jesus every single day as he transforms our hearts. God, help us to go back to the simplicity, to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus every single day of our lives as the fuel for this kind of gospel-saturated life that you've called us to. And God, we pray all of this, as Paul says, in the name that is above every other name, the name that God the Father has exalted above every other name, the name at which one day 
Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, we pray it in that name, the unmatched name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, let's sing.